Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast, brought to you by Source from Sound Agriculture. I'm McCain Vogel, Assistant Editor at Cover Crop Strategies. In this episode, Marshall County, Iowa no-tiller Wade Dooley shares what he learned from his informal trial of seeding a rye cover crop every month of the year. As a sixth generation farmer, Dooley also shares why he believes communication is the most important thing when transitioning a family farm from one generation to the next. All right, so I'm here with uh, Wade Dooley. Wade, if you just want to kind of introduce yourself to our audience real quick, give a little bit about your background. And I always like to start with the question of kind of um, how did you first get involved in the world of agriculture? Wade Dooley, I farm in central Iowa. I'm the sixth generation on my family's farm. And uh, historically, we've always been a uh, crop and uh, livestock operation. I grew up on a farm, so been in it from the beginning. I uh, had bottle calves as a kid in 4-H and was able to keep heifers back from that. Started my herd with the uh, family herd and uh, slowly bought in. By the time I was 14, I was running row crops on my own uh, acres. And uh, I got started, I'm old enough now, I remember the uh, the good old days of LDP and DCP payments from the government when corn was $1.52 a bushel. So those were good days to be a farmer. Uh, not really. Those were good days to dream about farming and uh, work for somebody else. But as a teenager, it wasn't such a big deal. I uh, went to college at Iowa State, graduated with an agronomy degree. And because the farm economy in the early 2000s was absolute trash, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, extra money for me to come back to farm. Unlike times later, uh, a lot of new guys are back in farming, which is awesome now. But back when I was uh, looking at coming back, there was no room. So I took a job down in Florida and worked for a vegetable seed company uh, breeding watermelons, which was a completely different uh, way of farming, but it was definitely large-scale agriculture still. So that's pretty cool. And I came back when the housing bubble burst, the Great Recession that was so terrible for the majority of America was pretty awesome for agriculture because crop markets all went up. We were able to uh, get me back on the farm and there was enough cash flow to run for me to start my own operation up again, been at it ever since. All right. And so kind of fast forwarding to now, you're obviously, you're operating Glenwood Century Farm as well as uh, Dooley Ag Stewardship. So you want to talk a little bit about each of those and kind of what your role is um, and how they differ for each one. So Glenwood Century Farm is the name we came up with for the main farm operations. Uh, when I came back to the farm in 08, uh, we were primarily row crops and beef cattle. Uh, we'd gotten out of hogs and I needed to find kind of a niche that I would be able to generate some extra income on the, on the side because yes, row crops were making more money than they did in the early 2000s, but not that much more. So I started raising uh, watermelons because that was the knowledge I came back with. Uh, I did that for a few years, raising about three, four acres of watermelons along with uh, a couple hundred acres of corn and beans and then uh, had 50% share of the uh, livestock. And then as time went on, uh, that took the watermelons took so much extra time in kind of the peak season we shifted. And I started raising winter squash instead because there's a bigger picking window and it stores as opposed to watermelons. You got to get that thing out the, out the door. As soon as you pick it, it needs to get moving. Uh, the winter squash could sit for a month or two while I'm picking corn and then go back and start marketing. So that's the one with Century Farm was was more of the direct marketing arm 
uh, of the main farm operation. And then recently, I started uh, Dooley Ag Stewardship as a custom seeding and cover crop business. And I did that with the help of Practical Farmers of Iowa and their new uh, cover crop business accelerator program. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about the ladder that you mentioned there. What does that look like? How did, so I guess you've been busy um, with lots of different clients seeding cover crops. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So I guess talk us through a little bit about how that works, how, um, how people can kind of get involved in that and then what you end up doing for them. So I'm kind of a one-stop shop. I, I wouldn't recommend anyone who wants to get into cover crop businesses. Don't do what I do because I'm, I'm kind of crazy and I like to do things my own way and by myself. So I raise rye and oats, clean it, get it certified and sell it as bulk grain for cover crop seed. And I also do custom seeding. So then I'm selling the grain through the drill as well as getting paid to do the drilling. Uh, and my radius is probably larger than it should be. Right now I'm willing to drive 30, 35 miles, which with these roads today, it's hell on the equipment. So I'm thinking I'm gonna have to shrink up my radius a little bit because I just bought tires. And uh, yeah, that's exciting. So the cover crop business operation, my original hope was that I'd be able to get folks to book ahead. Like when they're getting in planting corn and beans in the spring, they'd be thinking about the cover crops in the fall and be scheduling bushels and acres and that sort of thing. And what it's turned into instead is everyone calls me the day that they pull out of the field with the combine and they say, hey, I've got 150 acres ready. Why don't you come drill it tomorrow? <laughs> I, I didn't know you wanted uh, any cover crop on this year. So that's wonderful. So it's it's difficult to plan uh, doing things that way. I've not done a great job of communicating with my customers in the winter months when I probably should be in order to get them to pre-book. Um, so that's one of those things that the uh, uh, business accelerator program with PFI, that's what they're trying to help me with is getting better at communicating. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, we've had uh, we've had a lot of different PFI people on the podcast before, and uh, they do a lot of good work. So that's a cool partnership that you're involved with them. Is it always um, you always drill the cover crops? You use any other methods or anything? So it all depends on the weather. Uh, for my customers, I try to make sure they're going to get stuff covered and not worry too much about me making all of the money. Uh, this year and last year, we were so dry in the fall. A lot of guys didn't want to do aerial seeding because the seed was just going to lay there. If they managed to catch the rains perfect, they worked really well. But there's a lot of guys the last two years, they just didn't feel comfortable with that. But I always encourage them to watch the weather. And depending on how things are looking, then if it looks like we're going to be wet at the right times, I tell them, go ahead and fly it on. You know, I don't mind missing out on those acres drilling because at least their stuff gets covered. And to me, that's more important. I like running the drill. I like making money doing that, but I'd rather that everything gets covered more so than, you know, running acres. All right. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. I know uh, you had sort of an experiment, I think, seeding rye every month. And I'm very curious. I think a lot of our listeners are going to be curious to hear about this one too. So um, what can you tell us? What did you learn? 
Sure. So seeding rye every month was not an official experiment. I do like to experiment a lot on my farm. Sometimes I get tied in with PFI or Iowa Soybean Association do like proper scientific trials. This was not. This is all me just going out and kind of playing. And so what we did was a field of soybeans took off in late October, I believe it was. This has been several years ago, so my memory is a little fuzzy on the timing. But we took soybeans off and immediately went in and drilled part of it, got rained out, and then it stayed wet for a while. So I stayed out of the field for almost a month. And then I went back in and drilled some more, got rained out again. At that point, I thought, well, you know, we're here. If I'm coming back to this field over once in a while, I might as well just keep the drill hitched up and see what happens. And so what I tried to do for the rest of the fall and winter and into early spring was come out in the mornings, do a couple passes, put on, I think I was putting on maybe a bushel an acre, something like that. It wasn't a heavy rate. And, you know, run for a couple swipes and call it good. This field is a large rectangular field. So a prime area for doing strip trials and that sort of thing. Uh, the field itself, I think, is 85 acres. So it's nice and big. So I went out in the mornings because once the ground froze, I could catch it at that sweet spot when the ground's just starting to thaw, but it hasn't turned to like chocolate pudding yet. And so I was able to get a couple swipes and I'd have to stop because the cultures would start picking up mud. And I don't like using a putty knife to scrape mud off my drill every time I use it. So uh, it was interesting because doing those swipes at a certain point in the spring, you could start seeing the differences between, you know, the November planting versus the January planting and definitely versus the March planting. Uh, putting them in wasn't a big deal, but that was also because I had the time. So that helped. It was nice that I had a tractor that would actually start when it was super cold. <laughs> but the results from that, mostly what I figured out was rye will grow if you give it half a chance. I have, because of this trial, I've started drilling, or I continue drilling cover crops clear into December for customers. And I don't worry about the rye coming in in the spring. We do run a higher rate now because it comes in really thin. Um, you know, instead of sending up five or six tillers, it's sending up one or two shoots. So we increased our rate. But for this experiment, I kept the rate the same the whole time to see what it looked like. The stuff that I put in in like February was pretty, pretty thin. It was not an impressive cover by any stretch, but it was a cover crop. It was out there. It was growing. And that's better than nothing. The stuff that went in March, it didn't vernalize. And so... Everything else tried to shoot up a uh, seed stock in late April, early May, but the stuff in March, it didn't do anything. It stayed in grass, low growing grass the entire time, which for planting made it really easy, but for weed control, it was terrible. It did nothing to slow down the spring weeds, like no competition at all. I was really surprised at that. That's interesting. Yeah, it seems like you learned a lot from it, at least, and uh, some stuff that you can take take with you in, in what you're doing now. So that's, that's definitely valuable. We'll come back to the episode in a moment. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Source from Sound Agriculture, for supporting today's podcast. 
If you want to make your fertilizer plan more efficient, source it. Source from Sound Agriculture optimizes the amount of crop nutrition supplied by the microbes in your soil, providing 25 pounds of nitrogen and phosphorus per acre. It's cost effective and easy to use. Just throw it in the tank and spray in seed. If you want to unlock your crop's potential and increase ROI, there's only one answer. Source it. Learn more at sound.ag. And now, let's get back to the episode. So let's talk a little bit about grazing cattle on cover crops, because I think that's something else that uh, you have some experience with. Sure, yeah. So grazing cattle with cover crops is how we started with covers on our farm. In 1997, uh, Dad put in the first rye cover crop on our farm. And I guess a little background, most of our farm is river bottom. We're right on the Iowa River, and for a good 20 years, we have really, really wet cycles. And so we flooded almost every summer. And so in 97, we had a big flood, and it wiped out half the corn crop in one of the fields. And so uh, we chopped that part off that we could, and then Dad wanted to have something out there growing. Uh, friends of his from back in his college days, they farmed in, in uh, Maryland on the Chesapeake. And they were using rye for cover crops because of the Chesapeake Bay uh, initiative out there. And so he talked to them about it and he read some publications. Uh, I don't remember if it was successful farming or just what, but he read in some publications where they were whispering about rye as a cover crop. So he put it on, knew nothing about that. You know, we didn't know how it grew. We just worked the ground, broadcast it. We didn't own a green drill. Um, so we broadcast it, rolled it in and hope for the best. And of course, as rye does, it took off growing beautiful green forage in the fall, turned the cows out and they were ecstatic. And we never chopped corn after that without putting rye in to follow on that bare dairy. Back then we were not no-till. We are hundred percent no-till now, but in the late nineties, we didn't have the equipment. The planters that we had were not uh, up to snuff. Uh, dad switched over to no-till planter in oh the early 2000s, I think it was. So up to that point, we were full with tillage. And the grazing was just fantastic because it saved us so much hay and it utilized those acres that otherwise would have just been bare dirt all winter and would have been solid weeds in the spring. And the downside with putting rye in, not knowing anything about it, was we didn't realize how fast it grows in the spring. And we kept the cows out of that field because we didn't want them to muck it up with the spring rains. Well, that meant the rye got three foot tall before we were able to get in to work it down. And the equipment we had at the time uh, was not up to the challenge, shall we say. It was, uh, it was a god-awful mess. <laughs> I, I, I was the one that got to be in that field working it. I distinctly remember the piles that I made. That was... Uh, yeah, that was an experience. But even with that experience, dad took away knowledge from it, said, okay, we don't let it get three feet tall before we try and till it under. And from then on, we never had that problem again. Uh, and like I said, then after that, we went no-till uh, within a few years. And so we really didn't have any problems with it. We started planting green uh, in 2009, I think, something like that. We started going into... Uh, a standing rye crop, but before then it was always terminated early. And grazing it 
man, grazing cover crops is the way to go. If you've got livestock that eat grass and you're just feeding hay all winter long and you're not putting them on the acres that you've already got, man, you're wasting a huge opportunity. Um, we started covering every acre that we could put cows on in 2009, 2010. Uh, I found out about uh, aerial seeding in 2008 and tried some with a broadcaster into soybeans. And then in 2009, I made my own highway broadcaster to put uh, winter wheat and rye in, and we grazed that the next year. And it was incredible being able to graze stuff. We were cow-calf operation, and we always fought mud. In March, it was mud season, and you'd lose calves in the mud. The cows would stand around the feed bunks and just make a, a mess of everything. And once we started grazing covers on a, a broader scale, all of that pretty much just went away. And man, was that a, that a godsend. Because you could go out and check cattle, and the cows were happy, the calves were healthy. We didn't have the ruts, we didn't have the piles, we didn't have the mess, and we didn't ruin the soil structure driving tractors around trying to move bunks and you know keep ahead of the mud. It was so much better. I'm curious, um, from like a soil health perspective, have you noticed um, a lot of differences now that you've in incorporated covers and grazing and no-till um, versus back at the beginning when you weren't doing any of that? Like, have you have you done any like soil tests and stuff like that where you can really see how much that's helped? Right. So we actually took part in a uh, trial uh, several years ago. I think it was in 20, 2017, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, with practical farmers of Iowa and several other larger organizations that were national, we took part in a uh, uh, a large trial using uh, no-till cover crops and cattle, and uh, and then the control was just no-till alone, no cover crops, no cattle. And what we saw, we had to put it on a field that was far away from our home farm because we've been doing it too long to be able to get a baseline. Um, and so we put it on a field that hadn't had livestock on it for probably 30, 40 years. And this trial went for a few years. They couldn't get funding to get it to go long enough that I thought it would be really good. But uh, I went for a few years and we saw in those few years a uh, big difference. The soil structure improved, our water infiltration more than doubled. Uh, our compaction issues were non-existent, even with the cattle. Uh, the only spot we had compaction was where I had my water tank, which I would expect because the cattle are going to cluster around that. I didn't have the ability to move it around much uh, due to water access. But that one is the only one where I actually have numbers. Um, and it's on, it's available. I think it was the Wallace Center that was part of that. But on our own farm, on the home farm, where we've done covers and cattle for 20 years now, the soil structure is fantastic everywhere that we don't drive the semi and the water infiltration is excellent uh i haven't had soil samples taken in several years because we started seeing very little changes after a while in the numbers um and i'm not a big believer in soil tests as far as fertility ratings go because you can take two soil tests a foot away from each other and get two different recommendations so that's not the most reliable system out there at this point, at least for judging for soil improvement and soil health over long term. 
but we do see a huge difference in soil structure from what we started because we were full with tillage and we were running cattle on stubble with no covers. And it's just night and day. You know, you can go out there and I can take a spade and just jab it in the ground with one hand anywhere in a field. And I can get a full shovel full of dirt and it's covered. It's just crawling with earthworms. There's all kinds of, of life in that soil. And I remember what it was like when I was a kid. We didn't have anything like that. You could dig all day and only find maybe one earthworm. So I know earthworms aren't 100% of the measurement of soil health, but it's it's a fun thing to notice. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's cool that you have kind of that memory too of being able to go back out there and, and see the difference now versus then. So that's definitely cool. All right, I got a couple more questions for you and then I'll let you go. One, I kind of want to go from a, a more specific back to kind of a general question, being that you're sixth generation on the farm. Um, what does it look like when a farm kind of has to transition from one generation to the next? Is that a smooth transition or, or what was your experience with it, I guess? Yeah, so transitioning a farm from one generation to the next is so fraught. There are so many issues that crop up just because of history and emotion. And it's really tough. Farmers aren't always very good at communicating, right? So there's a lot of things that just are left unsaid and are assumed, and that's really dangerous. Uh, People can get really, really hurt and really upset if you don't communicate well. In our family, we have the history of a farm transition that ended very badly. Uh, My, what is it, three times great-grandfather was the one who originally started the whole farm, um, built the house I'm in, and accumulated a pretty large amount of acres in the 1800s. And when he died, the family fought over the will, and they fought over every acre, and they lost over almost 90% of the farm to the bankers and the lawyers because they didn't communicate before the old man passed and nobody was happy. And so my grandparents in the forties and fifties, well, they spent basically their entire lifetimes building the farm back, buying acres back from the banks and the insurance companies and everybody. And so like that's, that's generational trauma as far as farm transitions go which really helped for us to transition one generation to the next because we knew what happens if you don't try to communicate. And so when I was in college, we started going to the uh, uh, farm transition workshops that were being held back then. They're way better now than they were then. They learned a lot in 20 years. (laughs) But it was totally worth it doing these workshops. It got dad and I to communicate on a completely different level. And so when I want to try something new, he was okay with it because we were on the same page. If I had just come back to the farm and started doing all this weird stuff without really having those conversations, it would not have gone well because he and I, we butt heads once in a while. We get along most of the time, but without being able to communicate on the important issues, all the nitpicky stuff can really pile up. So it's, it's, it's tough transitioning any business from one generation to the next. And farming, because it's our lifestyle, it's so much more challenging. We've got to get better at talking about this stuff. The, the old guys need to be able to transition to the next generation, whether it's their family members or not. And that's the other part. I think a lot of farmers are 
having problems dealing with because there's not that many young folks that want to come back to the farm within the family. There's a lot, a lot of a lot of young folks that have no family members farming that really want to farm. And there's a lot of old folks that really, really, really want the farm to keep going. I wish we could get them all to communicate more because, man, that's the future of Iowa. That's the future of the Midwest. The future of America is the next generation. And if we can't get the last generation to get along with the next generation, I don't know what we'll go. Yeah, a lot of good points there. Thanks for sharing that history. That's really cool. All right. So I've got one more for you. Uh, I want to ask you right now, you know, in late November, early December, when people are going to be mostly listening to this, what is one piece of cover crop advice that you want to leave farmers with uh, for this time of year, whether it be, you know, a, a species that's good to plant or just something that they should already be thinking about for next season, whatever you want, whatever you think. Okay. So I'm going to go with the planning for the future because right now, most of the guys that are going to put cover crops on, they already have, or they're about to. Uh, for everybody else, and for the ones who have already got covers on, next year is really important. Most of us order our crop seed more than two weeks before we want to put it in. Usually, the seed salesmen are out there in October selling corn for April planting. And we need to be thinking of our cover crops in the same manner. We need to plan ahead, we need to book ahead, but we also need to do the paperwork ahead. So there's an awful lot of incentives, depending on where you're at in the country, to get assistance, to get cost share. There's a ton of money out there and people are not signing up for it because they wait till the last second and then they miss the deadline. And this isn't difficult. It's just a time thing. And you can get the paperwork done months, months in advance. And you can get your seed ordered months in advance. You can get your acres booked months in advance. We need to be doing that because the cover crop industry is new. And it makes it a lot easier for those who are trying to get into this um, industry to have some stuff planned out in advance. I talk to a lot of professionals that are trying to get things ordered in and planned ahead and booked ahead. And they all struggle with this because the customers, the farmers, I'm a farmer too. We aren't the best at uh, thinking as far out as we probably ought. We are very stuck in this six month turnaround or less. And we need to plan a little farther than that because there's a lot more stuff we can do. We can really change our ground if we plan enough in advance. Big thanks to Wade Dooley for joining us for today's discussion. The full transcript of the episode will be available at CoverCropStrategies.com slash podcasts. Many thanks to our sponsor, Source from Sound Agriculture, for helping to make this Cover Crop podcast series possible. From all of us here at Cover Crop Strategies, I'm McCain Vogel. Thanks for listening and have a great day.